Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. ready to offer a highly ambitious trade deal, including zero tariffs and zero quotas. There is no need for a free trade agreement to involve accepting EU rules on competition policies, subsidies, social protection, the environment, or anything similar. I think there is a significant risk of what some people are calling no deal 2.0. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. Good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, uh, we're talking about coronavirus uh, this morning. The Bank of England saying that it's working with the UK and international authorities to ensure uh, everything goes right uh, in terms of the financial markets. But then we have this COBRA meeting uh, between uh, the government, uh, the health minister and others. And we also have the chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, who's attending that meeting. Yeah, I'm just looking at the newspaper front pages, really pretty much everyone talking about coronavirus. Over the weekend, it seems to really have encroached upon the UK conversation um, that, as as you say, we get more comments out of the uh, the chief medical officer there. Um, uh, what else can we tell you? The Boris Johnson warning now, it presents a significant challenge to the UK. Yeah, the PM uh, chairing that emergency COBRA meeting today. Of course, 36 people have now been diagnosed with the disease in the UK. It's understood that the official government plan the battle plan, as it's sort of being taglined in the media, I see, uh, on how to tackle the spread of the disease is apparently going to be signed off today. The Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, has said that contingencies could include banning large gatherings. We're considering all options. We have a full range of planning. Uh, I've been undertaking COBRAs for several weeks now and, and uh, leading that planning with the Prime Minister, making sure that we've got all those plans in place. So Matt Hancock sounding pretty calm there, but also not wanting to rule out actually closing down entire cities. So this is the kind of China plan. Yeah, I mean, it could get pretty big. But of course, as a leader, you have to maintain an element of calm, don't you? Well, joining us now is Richard Holden. He's the MP for North West Durham. He was elected at the 2019 general election, so a newcomer as an MP, but no stranger to Westminster, a special advisor to Chris Grayling as Transport Secretary, Gavin Williamson as Education Secretary, etc., etc. Richard, thank you for coming in. No uh, let's start talking about the coronavirus. Was yep. Boris Johnson too slow to respond to this? We're only really hearing from him today. No, I don't think so. As Matt said, and I spoke to Matt last week, Emma, he's been in COBRA meetings for a long time on this. And Boris will have been kept fully appraised of the situation uh, throughout. And, uh, you know, I think uh, just uh, on those reports of... Um, you know, worst case scenarios. I mean, I did a lot of worst case uh, crisis scenario planning for all sorts of things uh, when I was at the Department of Transport and uh, MOD. Um, you know, there's. Uh, we just need to be careful not to sensationalise anything at this stage. I think. But as, as a term of optics, is it not better to be seen to be doing something to seen to be present in terms of just what the public is is getting put across to them? Well, I think the Prime Minister spoke out on Friday about it and uh, was very clear about what people needed to do. And um, he's also, you know, as Matt said, he's been fully across it for for weeks now. I've spoken to his team as well. Um, so that you know, this is obviously a matter of great concern for everybody, um, but uh, equally, 
equally one I think that the government has a, a pretty good handle on at the moment. OK, a pretty good handle on the situation right now. Spending, though, this could actually get very expensive uh, if it does indeed escalate, as it has done in Italy, which I think is why most people are so worried. The impact on the budget could be significant. Italy already asking uh, to, to be able to expand its fiscal measures. Well, there are contingencies in place for these sorts of events, just like there are in the uh, in other situations of disaster, natural disasters and a war and things like that. So I'm sure the Treasury will be uh, making extra funds available if it becomes necessary to do so. Does that mean a slim down budget, though, if it no, I, I don't, come from I, somewhere? I don't think we're looking at that sort of level of impact. And as I said, the Treasury does maintain contingency funds for these sorts of events. Uh, and I know when uh, I was at the Department of Transport, we had to repatriate people when some airlines collapsed and that sort of thing. And, and that's, you know, these are... Uh, uh, not small uh, amounts of money, but they're equally not things which are going to you know, massively move the dial in terms of GDP. Mm, OK, um, that's obviously not the case in China, obviously, where the, yes. you know, the epicentre of the outbreak. Um, look, is the NHS in your, uh, in your constituency ready? Uh, were, it, were things to get worse? Yes, I think um, across the country, the NHS is in a pretty good place. Um, I think there's certainly more that can always be done, but I know that the contingency planning for this sort of thing is very much uh, very much there. Um, and you're looking at the major health centres, the sort of tier three hospitals who will mm. be leading the fight on this. So that'll be uh, in my neck of the woods, that's in Middlesbrough and in Newcastle. So uh, that, that's, you know, I know in London that they've done training on this already. So I'm, I'm confident the NHS will be able to respond if necessary. OK, that's coronavirus. I want to bring you on to Brexit. First day of talks today mm-hmm. with the EU on this new round. Uh, what caught my eye today was a piece by David Gork, who was, of course, a very vocal opponent of No Deal. He's now saying that a No Deal would, in some ways, satisfy what the government is after, in the sense that it represents recovering political and economic independence in full, the sort of language that David Frost was using. He says it would only be marginally worse than No Deal. And also it means that the Prime Minister isn't then responsible for any consequences. Do you feel like we're moving towards a no deal here? No, I think the government's been very, very clear here. We've said consistently that uh, what we want is a Canada-style free trade agreement with the European Union. And I see no reason why that shouldn't be what we uh, what we get. But the EU said, has repeatedly said that you only get that with keeping rules um, level, essentially, with the EU, and the government's ruled that out. That's not the situation where when they've agreed similar deals with Canada and with Japan. So I don't understand why that would be their negotiating position. I have, you know, the government's also been clear that if the EU isn't prepared to budge on that, then we're happy to go for an Australia-style deal. Uh, Australia-style is, is simply verbiage, which means and no deal Brexit. No, it's a, it, it means that we have sector-by-sector agreements on specific things. Um, so it won't be an across-the-peace deal, um, which is what we want. We want a comprehensive deal, which is the Canada-South Free Trade Agreement. Um, but if we if it has to be sector-by-sector, sector, then we'll negotiate sector-by-sector. Sector. And that's just the way, uh, if, the, if the European Union want to go that way... Uh, again, the EU said go. that they won't do sector-by-sector sector negotiations, that they do the deal at, in one go or nothing. Well, we'll see what they we'll see what they do. Do you see any form of landing zone here? Yeah, I think there's a I think there's a definite possibility of everybody coming together, uh, you know, in June uh, and uh, and getting this proper Canada South Free Trade Agreement there. I don't think there's uh, any real desire um, for anybody to 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 push it to push it to over the edge. I think there's a I think we can we can get there. But as I've said. Um, Britain can and will thrive with an Australia sector-by-sector deal if we don't get a uh, a comprehensive one across the board, if the European Union isn't prepared to negotiate on that basis. You know, 
we are one of their biggest trading partners. I have I see no reason why they wouldn't want to negotiate. But that runs both ways, though. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, in leaked emails reported by the Mail on Sunday, um, this Treasury advisor arguing that the food sector isn't critically important to the UK, that the UK could follow the example of Singapore, which is, quote, rich without having its own agricultural sector. What do you make of that? Well, I mean, advisors, advisor, ministers decide, as uh-huh. I perfectly well know from my time <laughs> as an advisor. Um, there'll be lots of, um, I'm sure, things like this popping up. But it's quite, you know, it's been made very clear by the government that both the fishing and the agricultural sector will be properly looked after as part of any deals that we do. Uh, you know, it's important for my farmers, it's important for people who have coastal constituencies, it's important for the entire UK that we have a, a thriving agricultural sector and I'm absolutely certain that that will be fully part of any negotiations that we do. And just very quickly back on the budget, I see there's a bit of an uproar among a certain part of the party around reports over scrapping entrepreneurs' tax breaks in the budget. Where do you stand on that? Are you getting up in arms? Well, I'll tell you the one thing that I'm very keen on for the budget, and that is scrapping the motorhomes tax rises we saw <laughs> early last year, um, which really directly affect my constituency. We've got 600 people directly employed in manufacturing of motorhomes there. They've seen a 10 to 15% decline. Uh, I want to see that tax reversed and also Richard, the- <laughs> have the knock-on consequences of that for my uh, rural areas. Uh, okay, and, you're, and you're uh, bigging up your constituency on an issue I know is close to your heart, <laughs> motorhomes. Uh, yeah, is. look, at this is even on your wiki page right okay let's talk about other issues slightly more i'm waiting all those those jobs i accept are, are very important uh, flooding how bad is it uh, and again has the prime minister done enough on this issue you know the accusation in a lot of the newspapers is it's a part-time pm not turning up when it really matters when people's homes are being flooded well i think you've you've seen the prime minister actually uh, there's there quite a lot of talk a few months ago about how this is going to be some form of imperial prime ministership actually he's running it as a cabinet government um and exactly really? uh, yeah Exactly. Uh, there, there certainly was. Uh, when he got his majority of 80, everybody said, oh, he'll be able to do whatever he wants. He'll just ignore the cabinet. Absolutely not true. The cabinet ministers are out there battling for their departments. Matt's been leading on the coronavirus, obviously keeping the prime minister informed. Uh, George has been leading on the DEFRA situation with the flooding. And I think actually there's been a huge amount of work done over the last few years. I think you look back to the early 2000s and there's some very severe flooding then. And the huge amount of investment that's gone in certain parts of the country has seen um, um, far less impact than there would have been without those massive investments that have been made over the last 10 years or so. So um, while it's obviously uh, you know, devastating for the communities that have been affected, I think there's a, that we can take heart from some of the things that the government has done over the last few years have, uh, have been shown to work this time. Um, there's still more to do, and um, you know, but things like the flood mm. uh, RE scheme have been really important for a lot of communities. You know, parts of my constituency, which have not, not have flooding this time, but have historically been affected, and it's quite important for them that people able to gain insurance across the board now whereas they weren't a few years ago and I think it's things like that which have fundamentally changed a lot of the uh, a lot of people's approach to this and you're hearing much from people affected in the region northeast you say it's not quite your constituency no it's it, 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 yeah no it's uh, in, in the broader in, in the, it's not been so bad on my side of the Pennines this time it has been tended to be further further south um, but uh, yeah no you do you know I've spoken to a lot of other MPs who've been affected and obviously it's very important to them and their constituents um, but it looks like things are starting to a, a bit now. The storm coming uh, in from the Atlantic, I believe, isn't mm. looking as strong as the previous one. So I think we're, we should hopefully be uh, over the worst of it now. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. 
It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at what else is making the news in the world of politics. We start with the issue that's been running around Priti Patel, the Prime Minister backing the Home Secretary following bullying claims made by the ex-top civil servant in her department. That comes after Sir Philip Rutnam, uh, the uh, aforementioned civil servant. He's also the Home Office's most senior official. He resigned, citing a vicious and orchestrated campaign against him. Patel has made no public comment since that resignation. Johnson saying he absolutely has confidence in the Home Secretary. Yeah, but people like uh, Yvette Cooper, MP... Uh, saying that the allegations are, quote, really serious and newspapers urging Boris Johnson not to wait for the Employment Tribunal to investigate. Look, this is absolutely eye-catching. And if it weren't for the other headlines, you know, this would be a huge Mm. storm. Uh, You know, the usually tight-lipped civil service actually putting their heads above the parapet. You know, this is, I don't know, unprecedented almost. And so we have an actual storm. Yeah. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, in terms of other news, though, mortgage approvals uh, caught my eye this morning. UK mortgage approvals jumping to the highest since before the Brexit referendum. The housing market swinging back into action following Boris Johnson's uh, breakthrough election win. Uh, the Bank of England saying that lenders signed off on what more than 70,000 home loans in January. So there you have the Boris bounds. Uh, and on the flip side, obviously, the anxiety that coronavirus could then come in and kind of ruin it all. Mm, absolutely. And then you've got this report from the Centre for Economic and business research on coronavirus. Pretty bleak reading for Londoners. It estimates nearly 15,000 people in the capital are likely to have travelled back from Italy in the past two weeks. Italy, of course, one of the big European hotspots, if not the worst affected on the continent. Uh, As two weeks is the estimated incubation period for the virus, they Mm. say symptoms may be hidden and have yet to emerge. Yeah, and lots of newspaper articles I note about the gig economy. Um, It started a couple of days ago in the Atlantic magazine over in the US about just how much damage if you have to stay at home and you can't work uh you know who's it going to hit the worst well it's those zeros hours contractors freelancers and and everybody in the gig economy Uh, but let's uh, talk a bit more about the coronavirus and the transmission possibilities here in the uk now being called highly likely according to public health england the medical director uh, and professor paul cosford uh, has said that the country must be prepared the warning comes after 13 more cases were diagnosed in the uk this weekend including the first patient in Scotland. Well, we're joined again uh, by Bloomberg Health reporter John Lowerman. John, really good to see you. You've been in the radio studio all morning sort of explaining the coronavirus to us. But I want you to tell us a bit more specifically about Britain and the UK public health officials really seeing the transmission in Britain as, quote, kind of likely. Do you agree? Uh, Well, if that's what they think, uh, there's no question that we're going to see much more transmission of this disease in the weeks and months to come. It's highly contagious, Mm. and a certain number of people have it. Um, If there are people coming back from areas uh, where they were likely to be infected, I'd say there's an excellent chance that they will bring the the disease back with them. Um, 
obviously I'm not an expert, I'm a reporter, but uh, this is what we've seen over and over again, right? Yeah. And uh, this gets back to this point that we were talking about earlier today, which is community spread, which is you see the disease cropping up places in, place, in places where you don't expect to see it. In other words, you can't trace the disease back to some known patient. It's been uh, transmitted among people uh, who had we had no idea had the disease. And I think that's one of the issues with this um, virus is that it appears to spread from people who don't have symptoms, who we don't know are patients. So, John, the health secretary, Matt Hancock, talking a lot about his strategy of contain, delay, research and mitigate a really uncatchy acronym. But what can and should the government be doing then to try and sp- uh, limit the spread, really, of this disease? Well, the first step of containment, uh, this is this is what um, you know China tried to do, as we discussed earlier, and that you you have to take that step. That's the most responsible step to take, which is to isolate the people who you know are infected and trace down their contacts, and then quarantine them. And then after that, uh, if if if, the, if and when those measures haven't worked, because sometimes they do work, they frequently work. Yeah. Actually, they do work in diseases that are less contagious than this one. It worked extremely well with Ebola virus for the most part. It worked extremely well with with SARS because SARS was not as contagious as this coronavirus. This disease spreads extremely quickly and easily. Mm. And I, I guess you could say the sunny side of that is it doesn't appear to be as lethal, at least not in most of the people that, or in most of the cases that we've seen, most of the countries that we've seen it to be. Mm. I mean, it's obviously lethal in some people. Uh, but SARS was a very lethal disease, killed almost 10% of the people who we know had it. In any case, just getting back to um, uh, interrupting the spread of it, then the next steps basically have to do with widening the groups of people that you're trying to separate from each other, and that may include you know, restaurants. Again, we talked about this, uh, restaurants, um, large gatherings of any type, um, uh, closing schools, that sort of thing. Yeah, and then I guess you really start to kind of think about the sort of cost-benefit, you know, that those are such big measures. But look, just individually, what can we all do to protect ourselves? I suppose that's, you know, that's what everyone is thinking about, isn't it? Yeah, I, you know, I, I get a lot of people coming to me and asking, you know, should I get a mask? Should I buy some antivirals? And um, really the best thing that you can do is wash your hands. I've talked to many, many people about this. And... Uh, uh, there's very good data that show, you know, the more frequently you wash your hands, the more, the less you touch your face with your, with uh, with your own fingers, with your own hands, you're going to, uh, you know, really reduce your chances of catching the virus. And then <clears throat> there's the other issue that uh, a lot of people have been talking about right now, which is handshaking, mm. kissing, that sort of thing. Uh, I don't know the data on that, but there's no question that uh, uh, people who wash their hands frequently have much lower chance of of catching and transmitting viruses like these to other people. All right, John, thank you very much. That was John Lauman, Bloomberg's health reporter. Well, let's move it on to Brexit. The first round of trade negotiations with the EU kicking off today in Brussels. But sources saying that red lines on both sides could put the chance of an agreement in danger by early April. At the same time, the government has outlined its negotiating objectives for trade talks with the US. Despite concerns, International Trade Secretary Liz Truss insists the UK does not have to choose between the EU or US standards. I don't see this as an either-or between a US deal and an EU deal. We want to get deals with both. And if you look at Canada, Canada is a country that has a great deal with the EU. It also has a good deal with the United States. And there are huge opportunities. 
So joining us now is our Brexit editor, Edward Evans. Uh, Edward, I've got to start with this possibility of no deal. We're talking there about the red lines, mm. the chance of an agreement in danger by early April. And David Gork writing today, I mentioned the first part of the programme, saying that this would make no deal more appealing in many ways for the government. Is that really what they're gunning for? Well, I think this, is, this has been looming for some time here. That Johnson has very clearly, he's got a majority. This is a government of believers in Brexit. For them, this is theological. This is about breaking free from Europe. Mm. And it's not clear whether that's sunk in on the EU side, across the whole of the EU side. And the officials we've spoken to are very clear on this. Look, the talks are going to start and there are very real disagreements already. We know particularly about state aid. There's fishing. More importantly, there's also the question of trust and what Boris Johnson has been doing on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now, this is all the, the, the measures that the government has signed up to in the withdrawal agreement that it has committed to doing. And the EU is very concerned at any signs that the UK is backtracking from this. This has the real potential to poison the whole negotiation. So what is possible is that this could end up with the talks breaking down by before Easter. Now, that may well be what Johnson wants, that narrative of betrayal, um, but it's, it's, and it's a very real possibility. Wow, a real possibility. OK, what about this um, idea of the UK and human rights laws? So this has been rejected again. It's another thread that's been rejected, um, it seems, by Boris Johnson, at least according to the Sunday Times. How important is this one element? It's very important for the internal security part of uh, this agreement. This is the, the sharing data about prisoners, and mm. that, that goes to the heart of that. If the UK doesn't commit to upholding the European Court of Human Rights, or you see, the European Court Convention on Human Rights, I should say, then the European Union would pull the plug on any kind of sharing there. Now, for Johnson, that might not be such a big deal. It is a very sensitive issue. Don't forget, the ECHR has long been a bugbear of the Tory right, yeah. uh, really ever since it was the British who incorporated it into English law in the Human Rights Act. Um, so the, the question is, what you know? how far will Cummings and others and Suella Braverman go to take it out of English law and whether that will be rebound in any agreement? Again, this all goes back to that question of you know, can the Europeans trust the UK, um, you know, over Ireland, over human rights law and over the rest of it? Don't forget, Europe has a fundamentally different um, experience of this law uh, to the UK. It's born out of very different historical circumstances. And this is deadly serious for the EU. This is not a sort of political game as it may be seen from the UK side. But worth mentioning that the European Convention on Human Rights, not an EU piece of Completely predates the EU. Completely predates the EU. Invented by Britain, drafted mostly by British lawyers uh, schooled in the common law. Don't forget, it it wasn't part of English law until the Human Rights Mm. Act of 2000. So it was the Brits who put it into the English law at that time. And now there's been, a, yeah, there's been a great debate ever since. What about the US trade talks? Because, you know, we can't also forget about uh, that little matter of a deal with President Donald Trump. Well, yes, t- timing is, of course, deeply uh, symbolic <laughs> yes. the same day that talks kick off with the EU. This is about reminding the EU, hello, there are other people out there that Britain wants to do a trade deal with. Now, the benefits are deeply, uh, are worth looking into. I think the government's expecting a, a 3.4 billion pound boost to GDP over 50 15 years from the most beneficial US trade deal. Now, just to put that in context, Bloomberg Economics estimates the cost of what Johnson calls an Australia-style deal with the EU, or a no-deal Brexit, is something like £80 billion. So you can see you know, the costs here... Yeah, writ large in the numbers. ...are slightly different. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.